Listener Production. Welcome to Real Crime Australian Detectives. I'm your host, Adam Shand. Sydney is apparently at war. Or are these public executions the new norm in the harbour city? Such outbreaks of violence used to be regarded as bad for business. But perhaps these personal feuds and vendettas have become the business. Certainly very few of these knuckleheads are making money from this. And it's hard to spend that money when you're in a grave. Here in Victoria, we used to poke fun at Sydney during Melbourne's gangland war, where it seemed Sydney gangsters were better at shooting houses than people. Now, crooks are falling faster in Sydney than at any time in Melbourne. The battles are centred around Sydney's Middle Eastern community. In an earlier time, the rise and fall of the Brothers for Life gang typified what happens in these situations. The Brothers for Life, founded by Bassam Hamzi, conformed to a familiar storyline. The faster they rise, the harder they fall. And this gang tore itself apart. Unfortunately, blood feuds like this one are just daily news now. Former New South Wales Detective Superintendent Deb Wallace has seen it all. First as the boss of the New South Wales Middle Eastern Organised Crime Squad and then as head of the anti-motorcycle gang squad Raptor. I got Deb back in to ask her, what does the Brothers for Life story have to tell us about the events of today? Who are these people who seem to have no regard for human life and the society they live in? Welcome to the show, Deb. Hello, Adam. Good to see you. You too. Tell me, what's happened here? Are we at war or is this, as I've suggested, just a series of rolling conflicts, a new culture for Sydney crime? I think you summed it up perfectly. We're quick to say, and I suppose it's a headline, you know, we're at war, but those that have memory and, and those that have been around long enough, you know, we go right back. It's, it's not new to have feuds between rival criminal gangs. The more sophisticated the gang, the less violence you'll see because they know it's bad for business. You bring the cops and you can't sell drugs while the cops are knocking on your door every day. But then we move along the timeline and it's become, I think, because these groups are somewhat ill-disciplined, unsophisticated, and don't have a structure, as do the outlaw motorcycle gangs, then their propensity for violence, add to that, makes them such a risk to the community because they actually are brazen and they don't care. Now, your experience with gang violence in Sydney goes right back. You've done it. You're a specialist, really, looking at the uh, Vietnamese crime in Cabramatta, the Middle Eastern crime, the motorcycle gangs. Are there defining traits about this gang life? I mean, from my perception, they rise and fall pretty quickly. Is that your experience? Exactly. They come at ebb and flows. And, and um, when I was doing the 5T street gang in Cabramatta, who were extremely violent to rival gangs or a revenge attack, and I remember them saying to me after their own leader was murdered, they said, you know, madam, a couple of things happen when you join a gang, and that is you get killed. That's the nature of the business. The second thing is you catch us and we go to jail. Or the third thing is if we survive long enough, we may just grow up and grow out. They become smarter, they don't use violence, and if they do, it's very discreet, and they become somewhat even legitimate in their businesses. They've made their money, so now it's time to get out. When we set up Middle Eastern Organised Crime Squad, the, the charter was to target criminals of Middle Eastern background, 
But in particular, we had an extra a line in our charter, which was particularly those that have a propensity for violence. So we weren't really looking at organised crime. We had an organised crime squad. We had a drug squad. So ours was set apart, I guess, because of the groups we were targeting were violent. And Brothers for Life seems to exhibit all those characteristics you mentioned before, short-lived, uh, you either die or you get out, you might grow out of it, you might go to jail. All those things are true of Brothers for Life. It's never true, by the way. They're never Brothers for Life, only for a short period of time until someone's banged up or dead. But in this case, this expression became the name of the group. Could you just explain what Brothers for Life was? I don't call them a criminal group, as we would sort of define organised crime. I would refer to them more as a group of criminals, um, with a common purpose, perhaps. I know that sounds a little complex, but it's they're not as organised as an organised criminal group. In fact, our logo on our cars was MIOX. That was our brand, Middle Eastern Organised Crime. And I'd often make the comment, well, I suppose it works because it fits on the car, but really this is Middle Eastern disorganised crime. Um, but that didn't fit on the cars as well, so we, we went for the organised crime. And they've got a history going right back to their founder, Bassam Hamzi. Well, indeed. Bassam Hamzi, who is he? Even though I've never met him personally, I've got to know him through, I suppose, reputation and through our focus on him. And I find him interesting, for want of a better word. I'd, I don't know what psychological profile one would give him if, you know, I'm sure that's been done when he's been sentenced for his crimes. But Bassam started off, and I suppose it's that from notoriety, you can rise to infamy. Um, my understanding is that Bassam and his brothers and sisters were actually born in Australia. And Bassam started off really low level, you know, going back as far as I can see to, you know, the late 90s, when he was around Auburn in particular, and low level crime, drug dealing, drug supply, etc, etc. And he went to, to jail after being, you know, caught numerous times. And, you know, as, as they do when they first get caught, you know, different control orders, I suppose that's what we call the term today, but, you know, bonds or etc. And it was during this period that he sort of stepped up the ante and he shot and killed an innocent person. In 1999, then aged 19, Hamzi shot dead a teenager in a Sydney nightclub for nothing at all. He was jailed for 21 years for murder. So that was the start, I guess, of him moving into that really, really violent crime. There was, it was un totally unmotivated. It was not a revenge attack. It was a young innocent person enjoying himself with his friends in Sydney and Bassam, for whatever reason, shot him. And Bassam was charged with murder and convicted and also he tried to kill a witness in that murder. So he was also charged with conspiracy to murder. So that was the beginning of his long-term sentence. And yet, you know, this, this guy kills a man in a nightclub he doesn't know over ego. He tries to kill a witness. And yet still, he, he seems to uh, gain notoriety and popularity amongst his, his fellows. What does that say about the fellows, I guess, that, that he's attracting? Who, who, who were the early gang members? Mainly extended family. And they were really all family members. So he, he surrounded himself. And I think that's where the term came from. Um, don't worry, Bassam. Uh, my understanding is they attended court and, you know, we're here to support you. We'll be, we, you know, you may be away, but we'll be your brothers for life. So although it was a throwaway line, that became their, 
I suppose, their mantle. They tattooed on themselves BFL. And it was no different really back to the Asian gangs when Trimin Tran, the leader of the 5T gang, went away as a young 15-year-old for attempted murder or murder and he got he was acquitted. So when he's released, he's got this automatically a sort of hero status. And I think I can see parallels with Bassam. You know, I'm, I'm tough. I've done a murder. Look at me now. I'm in jail. So really misguided role modelling to young people. In fact, I was so- shocked one time when I saw a young person really starting out on that, you know, vulnerable youth type person, not really a gang member. He had tattooed on his arm, on his forearm, Bassam, like like he was a cult figure. But the kid wouldn't have even known Bassam. In fact, he spelt the name wrong. <gasps> oh, so dear. that's how... You know, it's it's really this misguided youth thinking that these guys are someone to follow. So the entire action of this story takes place with Bassam in jail. And there's a chapter running there in Sydney. What what were they up to early doors? When Bassam was locked up, they weren't really of prominence, really. They, they floated in and out of criminal activities. They weren't really, oh, look, let's target the brothers for life. That happened sometime later around 2012 because... There's a, a something happens before that which really highlights Bassam Hamzi and his criminal network, and that was in 2008. Bassam was up in Lithgow Jail, fairly uh, restricted prisoner because of the, you know, different things that occurred while he was in custody. And police at Middle Eastern Organised Crime discovered that Bassam actually had access to a phone. Again contraband, for want of a better word. We believed at the time that he was running his drug network still from behind bars. And it was a little bit of a risk because, as you would know, if a prisoner's got a phone, that's a risk to security and prison guards will take that understandably immediately. We had a meeting with Mr Ron Woodham, who was the commissioner at the time, an outstanding commissioner of Criscrive Services. And we put the proposal to him, a bit risky, I guess, could we continue for him to have the phone for a very short period of time and let us monitor the phone without him knowing and see if we can get and break this network. Because even though Bassam was controlling it from inside, there were still criminals on the outside, mainly extended family and associates and relatives. Mr Woodham, I think, sort of just looked at us a bit like, you're kidding me. But then after a cup of tea in his office, as he said, you know, you've got six weeks. So we monitored the phone for six weeks and monitored over 19,000 calls. Some of them were hang-ups, but the violence displayed in those calls did show he was the kingpin of this network. He directed play. He was supplying drugs locally in Sydney, but also to Melbourne, a large amount in Melbourne. We end up charging them with major commercial supplies, but also really violent acts. If people didn't pay, then Bassam sanctioned that person to be kneecapped, even had organised the shooting of his own brother by one another relative. That shooting never happened, but that was what we picked up on. So we moved, we got enough evidence and eventually moved fairly quickly using the information from those intercepted calls to lock up him and his extended family. There was a a huge amount of charges of which Bassam eventually pleaded guilty after two years and got us a very, very heavy sentence. Bassam then, after he's locked up for the crimes at Lithgow Jail, he gets moved to Supermax in Goulburn and he was then classified as the most high-risk prisoner in New South Wales. I think he was the very first person to have that 
classification. And he was put in Supermax. And uh, my understanding at that stage, his extended family, a cousin, was still out at Bankstown and now starting to run the show. And I think if I was to, again, use my experience, I would say that Bassam, being sort of this egomaniac, felt he was losing control because another Hamsey was running the show while he was away. In Bankstown there, there was a lot of licentious behaviour going on and Bassam didn't like it. Yeah, and I think he was starting to lose control, which is what he needed. You know, they were operating and it was difficult for him to have control. What an idiot, because he's locked up in Supermax. You know, he already got caught before. So I'm sure the authorities in the corrections were going to be very mindful of of Bassam. And so he meets another guy in who was on remand for a double murder called Farhad Kwame. Farhad was of Afghani background and they... I can just imagine what that meeting was, but, you know, how that discussion went. But he sort of anointed Farhad. They obviously got along and obviously maybe discussed different things and said to Farhad, when you get out, I want you, I'm going to appoint you, like, you know, I'm going to anoint you to be my new commander at the Blacktown chapter, for want of a better word, of the Brothers for Life. Now, obviously, Farhad gets released. My understanding, he beat those double murder on a self-defence proposal to the courts and he was acquitted and he went out to Blacktown and he recruited uh, mainly his brothers. They were willing members, and but very young, vulnerable young men who, when we spoke to a number of them, really had never been in the gangster world. This was a whole new, but, you know, hey, hang out together. We get a T-shirt. It looks pretty cool. We can have a clubhouse. It was a clubhouse of sorts. It was, it was the ex-Finks clubhouse. They took out some of the standard bikey sort of paraphernalia and put in a disco ball, and, and it was quite, quite bizarre. And then suddenly things change about July 2013. And it's, well, we're a criminal business, so I want you, to a particular one, to go out and shoot this guy. And the person went, what do you mean? I don't even know this guy. Why am I shooting him? Well, you just have to because don't worry about why. And this is how these gangs operate. The top echelon don't get their hands dirty and they use these poor kids that are drawn to this lifestyle. For the T-shirt. You know, and suddenly he's a murderer. Yeah. yeah. And then he gets shot because he, had to, because he wouldn't go and shoot the guy. He gets shot himself in the leg. We have to show you. And again, they carefully did it in the leg. So that this is, you know, equivalent to a kneecapping, for want of a better word. This is because you have to be disciplined. In the end, the others are going, oh, my God, this is real. What was it about Kwame that gave him a power over these otherwise clean-skinned boys who prepared to throw their lot in with him? Look, I've met Kwame and he's very charismatic. And he certainly said to me when we were talking that he's, and it was sort of strange because he sort of drew parallels between him and I. He expressed to my staff that him and I had a, not a relationship, but a common thread that we both started off as soldiers and we worked our way through the ranks and we're now commanders. Well, it took me, you know, 37 years to go through the ranks. It seemed to take him about three months. So I'm not really sure where parallels, but when we spoke, he sort of said to me, at length, how his whole idea when he gets out or when he, whatever he does, is that he wants to take these youth and make life better for them. He wants to get them out of crime and, you know, and do sport. And I saw his face that? and he, he, he believed it. Do you I, believe I'm, it? Not for a minute. Like, I had he not got caught, he'd probably still be doing business. Because Kwame, his background, I mean, he says he was a soldier, but he wasn't. He was he was a young man in or young child in Afghanistan and he saw his uh, school blown up, he saw people die and so on and so forth. He saw trauma, but he was never a soldier. 
So you wonder no. how they fashion these these stories. But he seemed to, I guess, like many of these gang bosses I've met over the years, they have that charisma and this idea that they will go further than other people will. Yeah, look, I've never known anyone to join a gang and said, well, I'm going to join a gang because I'm probably going to get killed for it. They all think they're bulletproof, that I'm going to be bigger, I'm going to be better, I'm going to be, you know, the cops won't catch me, you know, I'm going to make lots of money out of this and maybe move overseas, buy, buy an island, you know, all that sort of romance garbage. And I do feel for the lower levels or the kids that are dragged into this sort of romance of a better life because often they do join these gangs for the fact of, being part of something, being recognised, being somebody. At the same time, you've got the Sydney crime media, if you like, always Mm -hmm. talking about gangs, always making them seem scarier, more attractive. How much did the media create the template for Bassam and his mates? Oh, I think as soon as you put a banner on something, it gives them power and there's no doubt in the world. And we, we saw it you know, back when I was working the streets in the 90s in Cabramatta, running a little gang, you know, a local gang unit and engaging with the youth there, they would say to me, um, because this 5T gang were about, oh, about 25 to 30, I guess. But by the time the media finished with it, they were like 100, 200. In fact, the perpetuated the myth, the cops themselves would buy in. I'd have reports where they said, oh, we saw a 5T gang member in the city and I'd ring the local cop and say, what, you know, they normally don't come out of Cabramatta, so what made you think he was a gang member? And they said, well, because he was Asian and he had a tattoo. So we we sort of have this need to categorise. And um, and I think you're right, the outlaw motorcycle gangs have withstood the test of time. People come and go, but the banner stays strong. And I think these groups sort of mirror that by saying, if I have a, a banner and call myself Brothers for Life or whatever, then that that banner is strong, even though the individuals may not be, if that makes sense. Well, that's right. And, you know, you had this group of young Afghan men and, and others who were going around to businesses in those areas with their Brothers for Life T-shirts on saying, we're here to extort you. And these people had been stood over by serious people back in the day. And, I mean, we go from that almost laughable scenario to them being quite a force in extortion. How did that happen? Yeah, I have to say, the Brothers for Life, their forte certainly wasn't probably a reputation of extortion. We saw the Bankstown Brothers for Life, which if one of a better word, are the Hamsey crew. Um, they tried a few attempts, on, I think on a car wash and whatnot. They weren't very good at it. And the people sort of went, oh, you know, who are you? Because as, as rightly you said, it's different a couple of guys coming in with Brothers for Life on their T-shirt, which is an unrecognisable banner as opposed to the Rebels or the Hells Angels coming in. So they weren't, that drugs was certainly their business. And then we see um, the rise around July of 2013 of Kwame and his crew. And they, yes, they started in Parramatta and, and I know a number of the shops went, hang on a minute, we're, we're, like you said, we're dealing with, you know, bike, outlaw motorcycle gangs, like these couple of kids. And they were, a lot of the kids were not big, robust, <laughs> big bikies um, walking with a T-shirt. They can't do these guys. Yeah. But again, this is the myth-making because if you go back into the Daily Telegraph archive, you can find these stories about shop owners in these areas saying we're terrified of brothers for life. And yeah. this, this is like marketing for these idiots, isn't yeah. it? You know, and so, Absolutely. Uh, the, the, the media has to, has to sh- shoulder some responsibility for, this, for the w- way things turned out because these guys did feel bigger and brassy than the, that they did before. And it wasn't too long before the shooting started. Why was that? Yeah, I think, um, and it, it was something I sort of put the 
scenario. I'm sure there was more to the discussion, but almost like a copyright issue. Uh, I think Hamoudi Hamzi or Mahmoud Hamzi over in Bankstown, who was sort of the a sort of de facto leader in lieu of Bassam being locked up, sort of had a meeting, my understanding, with, with Farhad and said, look, you know, you're using our name. You're not, you're not Lebanese. You're not the Bankstown crew. Who has said you can use our name? And he said, well, I'm, I'm the Blacktown chapter. I'm not coming over to your area. We've got our own area. You've got your area. But I think there was some umbrage taken for the use of the there's that banner thing. We're now going to fight over a name. But I think Farhad probably had a rush of blood and um, thought, well, hang on a minute. You've insulted me and you're not going to tell me what I can do. And so really that's when that's when the shooting started and, and it was full on for, you know, that next really right through, really started in October through November until the, if we call them the Blacktown Brothers for Life were taken out early 2014 in January. The reportedly the flashpoint was over one particular insult that the the Lebanese called the the Afghan brothers for life trash cans. That's what was said to me. Whether that's a little bit of you know romance or a little bit of poetic, but certainly what whatever that meeting was, it didn't end well, and they didn't. They, there was no peace negotiations. Put it that way. So what happened from there? So then we start to see a whole lot of people that are associated with the, if we call them the Bankstown Brothers for Life, so run predominantly by the Hamseys and associates, um, being shot up. So there were shootings all over. There were shootings at Pendle Hill. There were shootings at Guildford. There were shootings at Reesby. And, and these were shootings of their houses and number of confrontations. And then, of course, I think the, the most tragic one for me happened when they went to um, an address in Reesby. And they were looking, my understanding is they were looking, again, Kwame not present, using underlings. The idea of that was the target was to be the head of the, the Hamzi crew, Hamoud or Mahmoud Hamzi. They went to the garage and they fired to the into the garage. And they thought, yeah, planned that, you know, their, their target was to be there. He was there, but not present in the garage and sadly, um, one would say a, an innocent, a, a relative of the Hamseys was killed, a young, a young fellow. And I don't have any information to even suggest that he was part of the Hamsey crew. Yeah, he was, maybe he was in time to come, but certainly one, I would describe him as the wrong target was killed. That sparked a whole further shootings. I mean, Maha Hamsey was was shot to a female. Do you remember that story? Yep, that was. Um, they fired straight into the front door of the house, and um, there's no way because they knocked on the door, and so they obviously would assume someone's coming to the door. And um, she survived. She was mainly shot, I think, in the lower part. But certainly, the way they, you know, I saw the door that day. I went out to the scene. And there's no way they were intending to miss their target. Those shots were coming right through every part of that door. And there was innocent people. Anyone near enough, close enough, almost the same name would, would do. That, that'd be enough. Shoot them up. Yeah, there's that, there's that, like we were saying, because they are ill-disciplined, their intelligence may not be spot on. Um, they're people that haven't got, you know, they're not like you 
foresee your, your, your typical high, gun for hire hitman, you know, who might do their homework. It's, and that makes them, for the fear fact they're not disciplined, makes them so much more dangerous in, in a particular way. Like we saw, you know, the father and son, that Sarden was a target, the father gets killed at uh, Maryland's. Yeah, this is just one shooting after another. And I think there was a perception amongst the public that New South Wales police were powerless. What was the reality? What was the strategy back then? But how much assistance could you get? How much influence could you have where people weren't assisting police? Yeah, when you get like this, the the walls of silence go up because it's crook against crook. And a lot of the times they didn't sort of know who shot them, but it's that code of silence. and, And they would think, well, hang on. We're not going to tell the cops because we'll seek our own revenge. So the trouble is, I think the Hamsey crew never got clean air because it was almost week by week there was one of their premises being shot up. So they couldn't sort of regroup, for want of a better word. Um, and also at around the same time, uh, Hamsey, the leader of the Bankstown crew, was locked up for murder as well. So everything in there in the Hamsey side was in disarray. But the cops were, I think the strategy was very, very good and it had great results, was that we worked hand in glove with the homicide squad. So the homicide squad would do what they would do best, investigate, the, you know, do systematically fantastic processing through the homicide. But while they're doing that, we support them by being out there doing the proactive, keeping them on the move, keeping them dis- disorganised, trying to keep the preventing the next lot of shootings. And the, the thing is, yes, there's, you know, there was about 12, 13 shootings in that time, 10 shootings, one would say how many did we prevent by the amount of effort that went into the proactive response of disruption and you can never, you know, one shooting we say is too many but that 10, the way they were going could have been, you know, 20, 30, more people killed, sadly. I think you're right. I think you're dead right And, and people missed that part of the narrative. Now, New Year's Eve 2013 was a pretty big night where there was a whole bunch of crooks, including Fahad Kwame and a range of other crooks on a boat called Oscar Two. They were having a send-off for Adam Freeman, the son of George Freeman, who was about to go to jail. And all was going well until they moored at Rose Bay Wharf, just a stone's throw from my childhood home, by the way, across the road there. And in the leafy suburb of Rose Bay, suddenly there was a, uh, a lot of uh, bullets flying around. What happened that night? Yeah, it was actually the first. So it was the, the, the party was held on the 1st of January 2014 and it was all organised. You know, it was this beautiful yacht. They, you know, this, it was hired by um, an associate of uh, Fahad and um, a, a fellow called Les Elias who's overseas in the Philippines, never come back because he's wanted as a person of interest in, in the murder of Joanne Toon. So, and I say that, um, you know, he's not been charged with any offence. I'm sure the Homicide Squad would like to talk to him. But he arranges this night out on the 1st of January 2014 for, you know, it was a who's who of, I suppose, of, of, of Farhad and his, and his group and others. My report was to hire that boat was like $40,000, you know, a day to hire this thing. And it was, you know, the who's who and it was luxurious. And as it moors back in to, as you said, Rose Bay, which is a beautiful part of Sydney. Oh, yes. Harbourside. My parents used to love living there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a Western Suburbs girl, so it was like, you know, it was was beautiful. And, and of course, uh, Farhood's on the boat and two, I suppose, not not balaclavered up, but guys in hoodies asked the guy tendering the boat how much it is to hire. So engage in that conversation, no doubt getting close enough in an innocent way to get to the boat, um, then lit fire into into the boat and Farhad cops one in the shoulder 
and the boat takes off. So they go back out into the harbour, you know, no doubt to be a bit safer from these hail of bullets, for want of a better word, and a number of party goers on the boat were let off at different locations. Farhood was taken off and taken to um, a nearby hospital for treatment. So And so that's when, I suppose, it's not unusual... You know, we're shooting up the town out in, in southwestern and western Sydney and, you know, and I was called in daily, rightly so, by my bosses, you know, what are you doing? Stop this, stop this, you know. And we would we, we were close, we were close, but we just needed more time. Well, the, I suppose in a way, ironic, because the shooting of Farhad at Rose Bay, dare I say, well, now Farhad himself has been shot, coupled with Rose Bay, so how many more resources do you need? And I put my bid in and um, I got a really good amount of resources and um, they were all but locked up within two weeks. Would it be cynical of me to say that when it's Rose Bay, you tend to get a, a quick response on the resources? Uh, because this is an area where judges and QCs and politicians and rich people live and they're going to be calling their local MPs and whoever else they can call. Is, the, is, is that too simplistic to say that when you do something like that in this location, you suddenly get a lot more attention? It's unusual, isn't it? It's sad to say, um, being a Western Suburbs girl, that perhaps the media in a way at that time, there were so many shootings almost daily, would get desensitised a little bit to it, as in, um, well, another shooting, another house shot up. A lot, a lot of them weren't people getting shot, so I guess understandably. And then suddenly it's high profile. And I think in a way the media can be helpful. It was it was headlines because I think it was a different angle. Heavens above, where the Wild West comes to the, the legal side of the <laughs> harbour. So <laughs> to my look, hometown. I, you know, I, uh, your, your proposition is probably um, probably our cynical side, but hey, I don't care what gets me the resources. I was happy to take it. So what happened in that two weeks that hadn't happened prior to that? Oh, I, what had happened is we, and I'll just be a bit careful here because it did involve, uh, the person has been to court and is, is not named, and I certainly won't name him, but what happened, there was a young person, I think I said to you that they tracked these vulnerable youth. A lot of them come from fantastic families. And um, one of the group drawn to Farhead's um, group was a, a young fellow, young man who had so much potential. His family were amazing. Um, the story of their family of survival, of a resilience to get to this country, to build a new life was amazing. You know, the family was an outstanding contributor to our society. This kid had a job but thought it would be cool to hang out with these guys. And he was really attracted for the girls and the disco ball, I think, more so than the gangster life. Who wouldn't be, yeah. And he, but he, I think they picked out that he wasn't going to be very good at it. So what his role was to be given a bag containing a whole lot of drugs, like nearly two kilos of, of drugs and two guns. And uh, he, I think he freaked out a bit. So he took off overseas and uh, while he was away, the, the people come knocking on the family's door to say, well, where's, where's our sports equipment? We want to go to the gym. <laughs> uh, the family couldn't understand what they were talking about. So when he's rung from overseas, they've said, oh, some of your friends are here. They said to ask you where their sports bag is. To his credit, I think he had fears for his family's safety. So he came back, um, was in such fear that he approached us and gave us the sports bag which led us into a whole lot of different strategies so we could flush them out. So we actually end up locking up. Some of the Kwame crew had been locked up for some extortions before, so some were out of play, 
but that gave us the leverage and some fantastic covert strategies were put in place that they were then locked up for the drugs and the firearm offences as well. So that gave us that break. So they hadn't been charged with the murders yet, but that gave us that air that the homicide needed some clean air to get on top of this. Sure. Um, and they and, were locked up. So. And these brothers for life become brothers as long as it's convenient. And I think this will happen with, with these uh, crooks today uh, that are shooting each other in Sydney. But also, these young Afghan men in particular, speaking to other officers in New South Wales, they were amazed at how quickly they fell off the group and uh, really disavowed any connection to it. Yeah, they, um, you know, I think it was, and, and I think one of my fantastic sergeants at the time in a throwaway line, because people say, oh, when were the Brothers for Life formed? When did they come to their demise? And it's, and it's not as simple as a historic timeline like an outlaw motorcycle gang um, who has historic references. Um, and they would come in and go out, both, you know, not so much Kwame's crew, because they were short, sharp for a period of seven months. But if we look at the longer term, uh, the Bassam Hamsey crew, for want of a better word, one of my sergeants said, well, they, they appear one day that they're gone next. And he said in a throwaway line, they're lucky to be brothers for life. They're lucky to be brothers for today. And I thought that was a, a good example. Well, indeed, because none of these guys seem to look at the last reel of the film. I mean, Fahad Kwame is doing 58 years in Goulburn Supermax for three conspiracy charges and manslaughter. He, I think he may get parole when he's about 75, but that's been delayed, of course, because he stabbed a, uh, an inmate and got another year on top of his sentence. So he'll be out, I think, October 2056. Yeah. And, you know, it just shows, doesn't it? I mean, what outstanding work done by those investigators because Kwame, I think his head sentence was 63 years with a non-parole of 54, something like that. And, you know, he never pulled the gun to murder anyone. And yet, look at the sentence, he's got more than anybody. So it just shows what a great work those homicide and other investigators did. Well, indeed, because some of those investigators were personally threatened. I know of at least one female officer who had to move residences a couple of times. There was very serious concerns about her life. Yeah, and you know what? I suppose it's a case of when crooks are under a bit of pressure, they, they do that. And often we get asked the question about do cops fear for their life, you know, particularly, you know, if you've got a bit of a profile. And, and I, my answer is, thankfully, thankfully, these crooks really do start to realise what would it mean if you ever targeted police officer and I think they're probably one would say do they have enough brains to to realize that possibly I hope and I'm thankful they well I think to stage. get into this line of business brains are not exactly the prerequisite but you're right I think it just brings an, an unending focus and and more disaster I mean I mean Bassam continues to be an industrious drug dealer he uh, he was caught obviously a year or two ago dealing from his uh, jail cell with the assistance of a lawyer so he's still got some some dash about him um, would you think he could form up again and, and influence others on the outside to do his bidding? Oh, no, I, I'm hoping not. I, I mean, anything's possible. We are, you know, look, look what he did at Lithgow. But I think the authorities are well and truly on top of him. I think his earliest release date, even with parole, is 2036. It may be even longer because I think his head sentence was 2042. Correct. Uh, from So, you know, he's, he's away for a while. So these crims need access to people to be able to do stuff on the outside. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that the, I have a great faith in our corrections department that I'm sure they're on top of, you know, the amount of access he can get and what, what he's up to. I'm sure there are families listening to this and young men as well, young women too, who'll be thinking, why do these people get involved in this? 
how do I keep my kids out of it? What did we learn from this period, Brothers for Life and, and through till today? I'm a strong believer in offering alternatives to the romance of, of criminal groups, you know, and I'm so proud of the fact that we, and I still do it now, we work in detention centres for kids, but particularly a lot of islander kids have, are now soiling with what we're seeing more recently. And when you get down and talking to these kids, um, or young men, I should refer to them, I suppose, they're, they're amazing and um, they've got so much potential and I'm so encouraged to see some of our star NRL footballers from that area and from an islander background are now stepping up to be, you know, role models. And I'm hoping some of these kids, we do it ourselves when the Raptor officers and we go in with the juvenile detention programs, we use sport as a, a way to engage them. You know, we, we toss around a football, they run touch football matches. Uh, there's so much commitment by both some of these officers and the, the managers and team, particularly at Cobham. It's amazing to see and the relationships they build up. So I would say it comes down to education. I don't think anything has changed. A lot of the stuff way back in the Asian gangs were if we give them an education and not let them slip through the cracks or give them alternatives. If they're not the best scholars, get them early into – and I'm, I'm so – glad to see today we have in don't we in schools they can do trades as opposed to getting unit four maths but one of the kids said uh, uh, who's now a potential leader in Cobham and he's using his um, leadership skills to to spread the word to his other people in custody about don't go down my the way I went and I heard him speak and he said and which I thought was really interesting he said that I, at the age of 12 and 13, I was given a lot of freedom by my parents. And I never got asked, you know, why are you out at 11 o'clock at night? Um, if I didn't come home, really no one was there to, to ask me the questions. I wish my parents were strict with me. And I thought that was really insightful that this kid was screaming out for a parent. You know, people, kids often don't they complain, oh, my parents are too strict. This kid was saying, if only my parents had been around to care more for what I was doing out about town, maybe I wouldn't have been what I what I committed. It's all about choices. What would you say to somebody who who's listening now who is faced with that 50-50, which way do I go? What are the resources available to begin that path to a new future? Well, I guess it's giving, it's, it's, we go right back to the tin tax. And, and again, not, you know, it's, it's interesting you raise that because we're looking at some of the gangs now and they're third generation. They had opportunities. They're from parents who do speak English. Yes, yeah, some of them still don't. But I sort of see when we were doing a lot of stuff with, uh, when the stuff at out of Western suburbs just started with the Islander kids, the elders, the community leaders were so keen to be engaged and be involved. They really work very closely with us. So I think that community engagement is really important. And I think we're always improving on doing that. You know, if your cop comes along and says, don't do crime, they look at us like we're on the other side of the fence. We're your cops. What would you know? But getting those community leaders who have the real influence or role models like we're seeing with the, the footballers and the NRL is I think, really, really important. And sometimes jail is the best circuit breaker and I'd have to say that those young men should be thanking you for locking them up because the alternative was going to be much, much worse for them. Thanks for your time, Deb Wallace. Thanks, Adam. Production by Matt Dwyer and Bonnie Lavelle. Sound design by Matt Dwyer. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Theme music by Matt Nikolic. Research by Nolly Shand. 
digital producer Jack Shand. This has been a Real Crime production, written and produced by Adam Shand. If you'd like to hear more of my work, go to Real Crime Features, Real Crime Interviews and State Crime Command Investigations. Thanks for listening.